Hi, everybody, and welcome to Bernstein Insights, where we usually cover trends in the economy and markets and asset allocation for long-term investors. But today, we wanted to bring you a special episode that features our second annual Creating a Safer Chicago event. Now, you might not expect a private wealth manager to provide a platform for community outreach to stem gun violence, but that's just what our Chicago office did, and we're proud to share it with you. So with that, I'll turn it over to my colleague who heads that office, Rick Myers. Good evening. So welcome. Welcome to our second annual Safer Chicago Ripple Effect program. And I'm just delighted uh, to see that so many of you turned out for tonight's conversation. So my name is Rick Myers. I'm the uh, Senior Managing Director for Bernstein's Practice here uh, in Chicago. And it might not surprise you, but from time to time uh, over the last several years, I I get asked, uh, why exactly is an investment firm hosting um, an event like this? And uh, the way that we see it is that violence in our city affects all of us. And as part of the community, we feel that it's an imperative to not stand on the sidelines. And quite simply, this is an issue that's important to our clients as evidenced by the fact that so many of you chose to, uh, to join us here tonight. But we don't labor under this uh, illusion that uh, the challenges facing our city are, are easily fixed, easily addressed, uh, but we do believe that change is possible. And we hope that, uh, as the title of, of our program suggests, that we can be uh, a catalyst for a set of individual actions that in their collective create a ripple effect that leads to meaningful change. And the goal, simply put, is to provide a forum for people who care about this issue to connect with the organizations that are doing important work here in Chicago. And, just maybe, uh, facilitate some dialogue and cooperation among these organizations along the way. So last year, at this program, we profiled four organizations, uh, Leave No Veteran Behind, who, in addition to their other efforts, helps to provide safe passage to kids each and every day to and from school. Uh, In addition, we heard from Tech Hub Blue 1647, who's focused on skill building and technology and the creation of uh, new employment opportunities where those opportunities are so desperately needed. Uh, And I'm pleased to share, actually, that Blue 1647 and Leave No Veteran Behind recently announced a joint venture. I'd like to think the seeds of which were uh, set last year here at the program to provide skill training for youth and for veterans. We heard from Mimi LeClaire, who's the CEO of the Boys and Girls Club of Chicago. And Mimi shared with us how the BGCC is working hard to serve nearly 17,000 at-risk youth in our city each and every day. And she shared with us how they're working to provide the emotional, educational, physical, uh, and cultural resources uh, that these children so desperately need. Uh, I think Mimi is planning to join us a little bit later, so uh, if you see her, say thank you. And and finally, we heard from Evelyn Diaz, who I did see here in the room. Evelyn, right there in the back. Hey, Evelyn. Uh, Who's the president of Heartland Alliance. And uh, for those of you who may not know, Heartland's dedicated to dealing with uh, the challenges to equity and to opportunity and to safety uh, that come as the byproduct of poverty. And during our panel discussion, 
Tonight we'll be hearing more uh, about the work that Evelyn previewed for us here on stage last year, uh, the Ready Chicago Initiative. So we're excited to hear more about that. Now all of these organizations remain hyper-focused on uh, their mission. They remain focused on making Chicago uh, a safer community. Before I formally introduce the program, I, I do feel it's uh, important to just briefly respond to a portion of what's going on in the current news cycle. You know, understandably, much has been made of late about the role that uh, the corporations and investors play in supporting the market for guns. And as a manager of assets for our clients, you know, we've been increasingly focused on um, responsible investing on behalf of those clients. I'm pleased to report that our clients have no investments in gun manufacturers. Uh, if they choose to, they can explicitly restrict exposure to uh, firms like Walmart that take place in the, in the distribution uh, of guns. Uh, and we're going to be adding even more to the, uh, the tool set to a suite of already socially responsible portfolios for our clients. But let's turn our attention to tonight's program. And I'm pleased to introduce our moderator and our panel, uh, Steve Edwards, who's the chief content officer uh, for BEZ, uh, will be moderating tonight's panel discussion and Q&A. And on the panel, uh, Steve's joined by Nina Vinnick, Program Director for the Joyce Foundation, Rick Estrada, President and CEO of the Metropolitan Family Services, and Eddie Bocanegra, who's the Senior Director of the Ready Chicago Initiative. I'm going to turn it over to Steve to provide a bit more of a fulsome introduction to our panel. But thank you again for being here. Great. Rick, thank you so much. It's an honor to be here with all of you, and especially Eddie, Nina, and Rick, with all of you who continue to do such path-breaking work um, on behalf of our communities here in Chicago, and specifically around the issue of violence. Um, in addition to the titles that were referenced here, uh, I've known Eddie now for about 10 years or so, and some of you may know him from his work as co-executive director previously of the YMCA's Youth and Safety Violence Prevention Initiative, where, among other things, they launched the Urban Warriors Program, really bringing mentorship uh, from former vets and from youth in Chicago together in an effort to really reduce violence. Um, he was involved in ceasefire before that, and it's just one of, I think, the most important advocates nationally and locally for how we want to think about strengthening communities and providing opportunities for youth. So, Eddie, great to see you again. And Nina is, uh, in addition to her current role at Joyce, which has been really a critical investor in so many of these um, initiatives that we're talking about today, including the partnership uh, that we're, we'll be talking a little bit about in greater detail, also has helped fund a lot of the most significant reporting that WBEZ has done, especially over the last year, looking at violence in Chicago. Some of you may know our series, Every Other Hour, which really looked at this question of, in Chicago, who picks up a gun and why, and really examining that through multiple perspectives. Um, before that, uh, Nina led a number of different projects um, around fair housing, around violence, um, uh, through a number of different organizations, and at Joyce is one of the leading voices, not just in this region, but nationally on uh, issues related to gun policy and policing. So great to have you here. And Rick, in addition to his purview at Metropolitan Family Services, which really touches so many aspects of what it means to live in our region today, um, also spent 
a number of times, a number of years rather, previously as executive director of um, the Erie Neighborhood House. So he has housing and family services issues. He also spent time in city government, um, working specifically for DFSS in the city of Chicago. He's also chair of the board of the Woods Fund. So a really great complement of perspectives, and um, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us about these issues today. So. With that, let's jump into this. I'm going to ask them questions. We'll talk for about 25 minutes or so. Then we're going to turn the floor over to you for your questions. Uh, there will be a prompt on the screen, if there isn't already, for a way in which you can suggest your questions. We'll do that through text and through tablets, through your mobile devices. Those questions will come into a tablet that I have or will have soon on stage with me, and we'll bring in your perspectives and insights there so that we can actually unpack this issue more broadly. But I want to begin just by putting some numbers. We have a scroll of numbers earlier today on 2016 as it relates to the number of shootings and the number of murders in the city of Chicago. Rick Estrada, you have the latest numbers through the first part of this year. What is the current situation in Chicago right now? Well, I, I, Steve, thank you. I'd go back even further, but um, I think you're going to talk about the numbers. But we, what we do know is that beginning in July of 2017, the numbers started dropping. Yeah. And we ended the year with 15% fewer um, homicides and 20% fewer shooting incidents. And I confirmed this data earlier before coming here with the Chicago Police Department and the uh, Crime Lab. And what so far for the first two months of this year compared to the first two months of last year, uh, shooting victims are down 30%, shooting incidents down 28%, and homicides down 22%. So that trend now is eight months long. And, and what can we attribute that to? Do we have a sense of that, Nina, from your perspective? Well, I, I think it's a little early to say exactly what is accounting for the a positive trend in uh, homicides and, and shootings. Um, there are uh, a number of initiatives that are uh, in place that have been put into place uh, by the organizations that are represented here tonight, uh, and I think that that has helped us to move in the right direction. Um, so uh, those initiatives have come under the rubric or under the banner of uh, an initiative known as the Partnership for Safe and Peaceful Communities. And uh, what the partnership is, is a um, funder-led initiatives focused on a set of strategies designed to drive down the number of homicides and the number of shootings in Chicago over a two- to three-year period. So think back to 2016. Um, you, you've heard from Rick about the, the positive uh, trend, the declines uh, that we've seen and hopefully will continue to see. But in 2016, homicides in Chicago were uh, through the roof it, at a 20-year high, n- numbers that we have not seen in this city uh, since the 1990s. And the, the, uh, the uptick that we saw in 2016 really um, threatened to undo two decades of positive movement in reducing violence in our city. And at the same time in in 2016, we were also facing a crisis in uh, police legitimacy and and police community relations. So you'll recall uh, that the Laquan McDonald video was released uh, right at the end of 2015. The U.S. Department of Justice 
launched an investigation into civil rights violations by the Chicago Police Department, uh, and Mayor Emanuel appointed a task force on police accountability. So we, we were facing a set of really mutually reinforcing challenges in Chicago around gun violence and around policing. And that led a group of funders uh, to come together. At, at first, it was a small group that uh, included the Joyce Foundation, the MacArthur Foundation, and a few others, um, to, to say, what were we already doing around violence prevention, and how could we better align and scale those efforts to really try to meet the scope of the challenge that Chicago was facing. And over time, slowly, more and more funders joined us, and we became a formal partnership for safe and peaceful communities um, that aligned together around a set of five strategic initiatives. And, and you'll hear more about each of those strategies as we go. Uh, and together, um, we are now more than 30 funders. We've raised uh, about $35 million um, just in the first year for these initiatives. And just briefly, um, what we're supporting are uh, the, the largest segment of, of the initiative is focused on uh, direct services and interventions for the individuals who are at greatest risk of violence and the communities that are hardest hit. And Rick and Eddie are, are going to talk more about that. We're also supporting some police reform initiatives, uh, some uh, efforts to improve and strengthen gun laws in Illinois, and a small uh, grant fund to really deliver resources to the organizations that are closest to the violence working on the ground to uh, help our communities become safer. Well, and you mentioned just the relationship that Eddie and Rick and their organizations have to this. Eddie, so at the Heartland and Alliance, um, what's different about the approach that, that you're taking as it, as it relates to these strategies? Sure. So um, British Chicago is an innovative project that is um, addressing a lot of the gun violence in our city. The program targets individuals who are at the highest risk of gun involvement, uh, and the idea is to connect them uh, through employment uh, into paid transitional jobs, kind of behavior therapy, and support services for them. These things uh, provide positive pathways of opportunities uh, that would allow individuals to uh, be more productive in their lives. What's, there's so many things that I could talk about the program, and just also what makes this program unique in itself, from doing direct outreach uh, to the traditional jobs, to the CBT, which hasn't been done in the past. But the two things that I want to make sure that I, that I highlight is that it's highly targeted. So what that means is that we have um, a hyper uh, focus on individuals who, as I mentioned just a moment ago, are very likely to be victims or perpetrators of violence. It's an 18-month program as well. And the way that we are doing this is through various community partners that bring a lens of expertise to provide street-level outreach, transitional jobs. In addition to that, our partnership with the Illinois Department of Corrections, the Cook County Jail, or the Cook County Sheriff's Office. And the idea, again, is to focus with individuals through this intensive services where in most jobs, if somebody doesn't show up for consistently two or three days, are probably fired. 
So we recognize that progression with these individuals isn't linear, and so we have to create the space where people could, could fall and be able to re rejoin uh, the community, or in this case, the employment opportunities. And, and what's the age group that you're looking at roughly? What's the span for the jobs programs? So it's 18 and older, yep. and part of the reason why it's 18 and older, if you look at who's driving the violence in our city of, Chica in our, our city of Chicago, about 50% of the violence is driven between those who are 19 and 29. About 23, 24% are those who are under the age of 18, and the rest are 30 and older. And so I, I do so want to... half of it between really the 19 and 29 cohort. Correct. And this is also a population, Steve, that often are overlooked, and for a number of different reasons. Those who are returning back from prison, those who have a number of felony convictions, um, and a part of it has to do because... It, the challenges that comes with supporting individuals. I'll give you um, a good example of what I mean and how the program is actually put into use. We have a young man in Inglewood, mid-20s, late-20s or so. At the, age of t at the age of 10, his mother went missing. Three weeks later, they found her in the alley. Shortly after this, his older brother was killed. This forced the older siblings and the grandmother to support this young person. Since the age of 10, he'd been out of the justice system. A few years ago, he was shot multiple times. He was shot in the neck, in the head, bullet hole he has in his cheek, several times in his body. But here's an individual that perhaps the first or second or 10th time has been given an opportunity, but not, not only just an opportunity right now with our program, but an opportunity to really engage them in a very culturally sensitive way, to engage them relentlessly. He has been one of our first participants since September. He's only missed one day. Here's a person who has a son, a young child, who's now able to provide for his family. And the point that I'm trying to make here by the example that I give is that he's not the exception. He's the norm with many of the participants that we're working with. And often what's not taken into consideration is the magnitude of service or of resources that are needed to support individuals who are driving the violence. And lastly, I'll say, people who, that you see in the news um, that, are being, that are shooting someone else or, or are being charged with an offense uh, such as battery, the science is telling us that these individuals have also been victims in most cases, but we never see them that way. So I think here's a unique opportunity to infuse intensive services kind of behavior therapy, because the thing that I would say about uh, CBT, it helps create the space between impulse and action. And if you think about brain development, this is, there, we shouldn't be surprised why so many young people are driving the violence in our city. Yeah, yeah. I want you to um, unpack cognitive behavioral therapy in this context in a minute. But Rick, let me come to you in Metropolitan Family Services. So we have a scenario of this young man that Eddie just described. Where does Metropolitan Family Services fit into the matrix that we're talking about here? Sure. If you think about the READY program, this is the way I think about it. And I think sometimes I can almost tell the READY story and Eddie could tell the uh, MFS, Communities Partnering for Peace story. Uh, if you think about their program, it's a very targeted, very focused, almost a demonstration project. Uh, ours is a larger, broader project in nine, community, uh, nine communities, uh, and it's a partnership of nine organizations to do three things. And the reason um, it is currently larger is because we don't only have the focus on the 
uh, in the hyper-focus on the individuals that Eddie talked about, but also on the broader community. But what we're trying to do in, in this situation is a couple of things. One, uh, provide intensive street outreach, like what Eddie just said. And what that means, uh, for those of you who don't understand the work, is um, providing credible messengers. So, so individuals that were once in the street gangs, if you will, the street organizations, but have now proven that they are fully out and we do a variety of checks, not only your traditional HR checks or the police checks, but street checks to make sure that these guys, they're mostly guys, not all, are out. So we, What do you mean like a street check? Uh, you check well, with other crews and cliques and gangs? Absolutely. That's exactly right. We check with other crews and that. We check with Eddie's guys. We check with Cure Violence. We check with CRED. We check with uh, just community members and leaders uh, themselves. We check with... Uh, current active gangbangers, is this guy really out or not? And so you make you want to make sure, because it's critical that we have the right individuals or then the police will not trust us and our work. And if they don't trust our work, then we can't be as effective as we need to be to bring this violence down. So that's an important part. And Eddie already talked about the partnership with case management for both the individuals out on the street but those that are returning citizens from prison. That's one part of the work. And we're talking about bringing uh, lots of human assets to these nine communities. So it, in each community, we're bringing 10 individuals, four out, outreach workers, four case managers, a supervisor, and a data person so that we're reporting outcomes to our variety of different funders. So that's one component. The second component, component we call light in the night. So we touch 47,000 people from the middle of June to the beginning of September through this program, and it's a coordinated effort in all nine communities to provide activities that first center on food, but then provide uh, the kinds of things that you and I might expect in, in our neighborhoods, whether it's an uh, open mic, uh, opportunity pitmaster challenges, that kind of thing, not to be cliche-ish, but midnight basketball, those types of things that would change your perception about your community, that now it is a, a safe place to be. But the critical, the most critical part, and I think this is important to both Ready and MFS, it's the uh, creation of something we're calling the Metropolitan Peace Academy. And this is a place where we will take the best available practice from, the, uh, from our uh, eight partners together with other organizations that are involved in this work, whether it's Father Flager, Re- Reverend Harris, Arnie Duncan and his work, certainly our closest partners at Ready Chicago, bring all that best practice Put on top of that what's going on across the country, Los Angeles, Boston, Oakland, New York, and then put science on top of that. So there is a lot, lots of Department of Justice and other uh, science and research out there that, that talk about what's the best practice, and then create a curriculum and then provide it to the individuals so that we lift and professionalize the field of street outreach so that Eddie's job uh, is made easier because they could trust that this is great training and that our job is easier because these guys are not trusted by the police. So that's, that's kind of our work. I, I want to get to you, Nina, on some of the other strategies here, but let me come back, Eddie, on this cognitive behavioral therapy. For those who, who may not be familiar with that approach, what is it and why is it particularly effective in this context? Or, or I should say maybe it's, we don't know that it's particularly effective, although there's been some early data done by the University of Chicago Crime Lab that says it can be powerfully so. Yeah. yeah, so CBT is a proven approach uh, to support behavior change. And so if you think about the young people that we're currently working with, there's a common theme, um, is that most of their acts of violence, are in, they happen in a split of a second. Uh, most of the 
people in this room, I would say that if somebody cuts you off, for example, while you're driving, um, you, know, you might have an immediate reaction. Um, but more, more than likely, you're going to keep driving or maybe say a few words and keep driving. Um, <laughs> but the truth is that many of the participants in our program perhaps uh, don't necessarily just say a few words. They'll pull out a gun in some cases or they'll cut off the car. Um, and so the CBT is a, is a kind of an entry um, approach to really mitigating um, behavior, modifying behavior change. And as I mentioned just a moment ago, it's really being able to create the space that is needed to really allow individuals to reflect, um, to, to create a space to, for individuals to reflect before they respond. And it's done in a, in a, in a group session, uh, and it's done with a professional coach who is trained to, to be able to facilitate that. And it's also culturally competent by using life experiences they actually are going through to really deconstruct those stories and find other alternatives of how they could have solved those problems. And it works, you're saying? It's been proven to work. Now, for any clinicians who are in a room, uh, they might say, well, individual therapy goes a lot further and all that. But let's think about this. Most clinicians um, or most institutions that might might be able to provide the level of support are not necessarily in our communities. So there's, there's, a, there's a gap there. But we do believe, and there's a lot of science that supports this, that with this level of introduction to, see, to, to kind of behavior therapy is another good way to start funneling individuals to more intensive individual therapy. And so some of the areas that we are kind of uh, solidifying right now is leveraging our own partnerships within Heart and Alliance. The beautiful thing about uh, Heart and Alliance is that so, there's several companies, there's mental health services that we're able to provide, housing, legal services that we're also partnering with a couple of organizations that provides more of this robust uh, support services for our participants because I, I keep saying this, like, the individuals in our program, even with opportunities such as jobs or CBT, um, their trajectory is not linear. And we have to really understand what that means because they will be hitting roadblocks. They're, they could easily be re-triggered by something. Death, shootings happen in the community quite often. And that re-triggers things for them. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we've been talking a little bit about, a lot about individual interventions, talking about support services, therapies, job training, job opportunities. Let me come to the other aspects of the strategy, Nina. So what are we doing or seeing from this partnership in a policy space and in a policing space? What's happening there? Right. And, and one thing I just want to add on the uh, READY and the uh, Communities Partnering for Peace initiatives that Rick and Eddie talked about that I think is important to know is, is that violence in Chicago is highly concentrated. It's concentrated in a handful of neighborhoods and it's concentrated among a, a very small sliver of our, of our population in Chicago. And I think that's what's so impactful about, about this work, that there's, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that delivering intensive social supports and interventions to this narrow population who are at greatest risk of being shot or shooting can have an impact in reducing violence, in preventing violence before it occurs. And, and that's really, you know, a lot of people talk about a public health approach to gun violence. That's really what we're talking about. It's about preventing violence before it occurs. But now let me say just a couple of words about some of the other strategies that the partnership is investing in. First, around um, policing. So as I said earlier, 
2016 was a year that really kind of laid bare the uh, tensions between uh, the Chicago Police Department and many, many community members uh, in our city. Um, as a result, to respond to that, the partnership has been investing in uh, a handful of initiatives to improve uh, police community trust by engaging in an intensive community engagement initiative to really create a new model for civilian oversight of policing uh, in, in Chicago. And that's a, a group that's known as the Grassroots Alliance for Police Accountability, or GAPA, which is a coalition of community-based organizations from all across the city. They're developing a new, uh, an ordinance actually, that will roll out a new commission for civilian oversight of the Chicago Police Department. Um, in addition to that, we're supporting the development of an early intervention system for the Chicago Police Department. And that's intended to identify police officers who may be at risk for adverse outcomes, whether that's excessive use of force or other uh, improper behaviors in, in their policing in the community. The idea is if we can identify those officers before those adverse events, and intervene with those officers with uh, supportive uh, interventions in a non-disciplinary way, then we're going to improve the uh, capacity, the functioning, and the outcomes of, of those officers in their interactions uh, on the streets. And that's a project that we're working on with the Crime Lab. And just to pause there, Eddie, you and I have spoken about this. You've spoken publicly about the, the parallels, actually, when it comes to trauma that... Um, people in law enforcement and people outside of law enforcement are often linked by. Um, tell me more about that piece of it as it relates to law enforcement and officers as well as youth who might be involved in violent behavior or sure. families. Yeah, so, you know, it's interesting. I was at, um, at UFC uh, a few weeks ago uh, doing a class lecture, and the students felt, um, so the question was asked about what, what's my perception around police? And how do I work with police? So I kind of laid it out. And um, in full disclosure, uh, I've served over 14 years in prison from the age of 18 to 32. So being in the position that I'm in right now is it's also very rare. And so I, I, I give a shout-out to my CEO for taking an opportunity or giving me a, a chance to kind of lead these efforts. And the reason why I bring this up is because I've had negative experiences with law enforcement as a kid. However, the police department, law enforcement officers, are, they are a part of the community. Whether we want to believe that, whether our participants want to believe that or not, they are a part of the community. And at the end of the day, when my mother used to get beat up uh, when I was a kid, who would I call? 911. And so I was challenging the students at, at, at UFC because they were pretty radical. They're like, you know... You know, we, we got to change. We got to eradicate the police department. There shouldn't be any prisons. And I'm like, hey, so many people did prison time. We need prisons. <laughs> so, and the reason why I point that out is because law enforcement officers are just like you and I. Now, there is a higher expectation of them because they, they go through a training. They take an oath and so on. But I, can, I could tell you, as someone who has also family members who are in the military, who have been combat vets, people who are in law enforcement, and what they've witnessed. 
and the impact it has on individuals. You can't expect to respond like what happened this last week in Little Village where a three-year-old was stabbed to death by his father and expect the police officer to, to respond to that. And then all of a sudden, two hours later, they pulled somebody over because they blew the stop sign and expect to be approached in a very positive and caring way. Like, are we thinking about how police officers are also being supported? And the parallel that I also want to make, and I know this doesn't answer your question fully, Steve, but I also think about the folks that, that Steve and, and Nina have pointed out, I mean, that, that um, Rick has pointed out as well. The people who are doing the frontline the front work, these are individuals, 83% of the people who are doing a direct service are people like myself, people like the participants. Close to 70% of my staff at Heart and Alliance have been just as involved. And I could tell you without any doubt that all of them have some level of trauma. Now, I'm not a clinician, but the symptoms are there. And so in the past, I've leveraged U.S. veterans to kind of draw the parallel. Today, I'm drawing the connections between law enforcement, other social service providers, and the people who are, direct, who are doing the direct service now, because we also have to find a way. How do we talk about this? But then how do we also invest in that area in the people who are providing the direct service? And I think that, that is extremely critical. I, I want to get Rick back involved here, but one of the questions that's, that's come in from the floor, just as a follow-on to that, is given the level of violence our young people experience, how prevalent is PTSD in neighborhoods and what are we doing to address it? That speaks in part to cognitive behavioral therapy, but also what you were just talking about there, this recognizing the links between trauma. What's your, what's your sense of that? You know, I, I think if I think about just, again, going back to the veterans and why... The so Urban my, Warriors program. The Urban Warriors program. So my brother, two... Two, uh, two tours in Iraq, 2003, 2005. Combat veteran, infantry reconnaissance. Second tour that he did, bomb went off, rattled his brain, lost about 85% of his short-term memory. He's a highly decorated veteran, but he's also a disabled veteran who has since then has had many, many challenges in his life, including in his marriage and with his siblings. When I mention the word PTSD, typically the first thing that comes to mind is war or veterans. But we never think about the victims or the offenders that we're serving today in our communities. We don't do it for a lot of different reasons, and we don't have enough time to go into that. But I think that we have to be creative in the way that we talk about this. We have to be bold in the way that we want to support innovation. And we have to test different things. The academy is one prime example that I would say that needs to continue to happen. The work employment opportunities, there's not enough just to give somebody... Uh, uh, you know, clinical services. It's not enough. Jobs are important. Supporting families. Removing some of the barriers of employment, such as felony convictions for some of our, our men. In North Lawndale, close to 70% of the men between the ages of 18 and 36 have a felony conviction. And yet, corporations close doors for many of these guys. I'll use myself as an example. I still struggle with trauma. As someone who went to the University of Chicago, someone who spoke at the United Nations and has flown all over the world, I still struggle. Vicariously, when I tell stories, when I hear other people's stories, I struggle with that. And if I struggle, knowing that even at home I have a, my wife's a therapist, so I have my own personal... <laughs> <laughs> if even with my social capital and my family support, if I struggle, I struggle. What's to say about the people who are providing direct service and the participants in our program that they're not struggling? 
they are walking around with invisible wounds. And we're not asking them enough, how are you healing? Or are you even healing? And we need to do that. And we need to create the space and the resources and the programs to address that. And I believe that Ready Chicago is one approach of doing that. Yeah. Um, we're taking your questions here through this platform as well. So don't be shy about chiming in with questions for any of our panelists on this. Rick, uh, this is one of those questions that just came in. I, it says, I live near a hot spot of violence in the city and have not heard of these programs. Uh, what is the plan to engage individuals uh, in those areas, moving to those areas, uh, who want to be involved, willing to be volunteers, willing to roll up their sleeves and, and be a part of uh, this broader partnership for change? Yeah, no, uh, absolutely. So uh, you could think about this as maybe being a pilot program that just started last, uh, the middle of July, um, and really didn't get going until August. So if you didn't hear about the program uh, I wouldn't, I'm not completely surprised, but you, certainly there are plenty of opportunities to engage, and, um, and I can tell you every single one of the communities where we are, where Ready is, where Cure Violence is, where CRED is, and connect you to one of the organizations. It doesn't have to be directly through, uh, through us, but we will connect you if, if you want. I, I want to just briefly just add one little point to the uh, PTSD conversation as, as a former clinician and now kind of listening to clinicians, lots lots of uh, time, it's, it's not that it's post-traumatic. Most of the guys talk about current trauma. Yeah. So it's not post. There's plenty of the post that's going on um, in the community, but it is current trauma. And just one little example, we have a early childhood development center in the New City community. You know where that is? That's the community between Englewood and the back of the yards. So, um, so just to give you a sense of where, where that is. So the about 40... Uh, 53rd in Loomis, if that gives you a sense. Uh, so we went to talk to our teachers there because we were having some issues. And uh, we wanted them, we asked them, how can we su- further support the work that you're doing here with these children? And mind you, we're talking about zero to five-year-old children. And one of the things that we heard that was striking and that impacts down the line the work that we're doing is, Uh, what they said, and this is not scientific at all, but they said, you know, what we're facing here to a certain extent is kamikaze babies, Uh, young, really uh, zero to three-year-old children that are trying to hurt themselves. And so how do you help us provide clinical work for this population? How do you help us provide clinical support for our staff who have to work with these children on a day-to-day basis? So a lot of this trauma is ongoing and current. So that, I just wanted to add that to what, uh, what Eddie said. But in terms of, of this project, I mean, we're, uh, if we had the slides, we'd tell you we are in North and South Lawndale, East and West Garfield, in Austin, in New City, in Englewood, in West Englewood, through the partnerships. We're in Roseland, in Auburn, Gresham, and in uh, South Shore. So we are in all the communities with the highest incidence of gun violence. And you're seeing that this, in partnership, and I have to continue to emphasize, in partnership with the police, is beginning to work. I want to come to not just the police piece of the partnership, but um, in my years reporting on this issue and in talking with different stakeholders and organizations, I've been struck by how oftentimes they'll be working on the issue of violence, deeply committed to addressing it, but then you mentioned another organization, 
and out of the side of their mouth, off the record, they sort of badmouth that approach. Yep. Or yep. over here in Little Village, there's no connectivity with what's going on in North Lawndale. Right. So, so what is that? A, is that a fair read of what has happened? And to what extent does this partnership try to address some of that? Yeah. This is this is um, something I wanted to mention. So you give me a couple of seconds. Yeah. So we did um, the question of why will this fail? Right. We asked our our program uh, partners to tell us uh, to do a pre-mortem because the post-mortem, you know. The patient is gone, and you're just kind of picking up pieces and trying to analyze what happened. So we said, let's do a pre-mortem instead. Why is this going to fail? And it goes directly to your point. Uh, as we went to, through the table of partners, they said, well, you know, the funders, the 30 or so funders, they're going to grow tired of this, and they're going to move on to the next thing, and this will not be sustainable. Or the city, um, some of them said, well, don't trust us. They're, they're going to sabotage it. Or the police think we're a bunch of thugs. The guys were hiring since they're just as involved as thugs, and they're not going to support it. And then it came uh, time uh, for us to speak, and we said, well, it's going to fail if we act like nonprofit gangbangers. And what I mean by that is that exactly what you were talking about, that when you hear about a program, that, that you act viciously. You talk about your turf. You don't cross that line because that's my nonprofit's turf. You uh, hoard resources. You don't share your knowledge and, and your technology to help resolve this issue. So if we act just like the organizations that we're, going, that we're trying to impact, then we will fail. And our commitment to, to the partners is, if you're going to act this way, let us know because we'll walk away. But, and if you're not, then we are going to partner with you in ways that you're not used to seeing. We're going to uh, do exactly what we say. We're going to share every resource. We're going, any any uh, technologies that are developed any proprietary knowledge will be shared by the group of nine. So, uh, so that's well. And we should say that some of that behavior you describe uh, is the logical outgrowth of limited funding, right? So, if we're all running different organizations, all competing for small dollars, then you have a lot at stake over making sure that your program is being funded. So, to what extent is this broader pool of funding really critical to and? not just supporting the work, but engendering the partnership, the collaboration, which has been lacking previously? Yeah, I, I think it's really important, and, and I think that's a great question. I, th I think what's unique about the partnership is that the work really is very coordinated, it's extremely collaborative, and it's really a comprehensive approach. And, and those things were, were just not the case, I think, prior to 2016. So sometimes it takes a crisis, to really drive change, and, and I think that's what we're seeing um, with the partnership and, and with the set of initiatives that, uh, that are being funded. Look, resources are always a challenge. Uh, we have raised $35 million, which is uh, incredible. Um, it has not come easily, and we are now uh, actively into fundraising for year two of, uh, of the partnership. What would you need year two? For year two? Yeah. Uh, I think we're uh, about uh, 10 to $15 million um, shy for year two right now. Um, so that, you know, that's, that's real money. Yeah, yeah. Um, we haven't talked about guns specifically, and it's top of mind because of the events just uh, within the last two weeks in Florida. There are a couple of questions here that speak to this, and I want to bring them to you, Nina, because I know you're deeply plugged into this. Um, so one is a question you may or may not have the answer to, um, 
but you might be able to talk about the broader. That is, how many homicides in Chicago are uh, done by guns obtained legally versus illegally? And the second, um, what plans are there to diminish the number of guns in our city? Um, is there you know, more that could be done that hasn't? Yep, um, great question. So Chicago has a gun violence problem because Chicago has a gun problem. Uh, our police department every year takes upwards of 7,000 guns off the street, and they do that year after year. So it's not as though they recover 7,000 guns and there are no more guns in Chicago. They keep coming. And the answer to the first question is that the vast majority of uh, homicides in Chicago are committed with illegally obtained guns. Now, we have some uh, good research that tells us where those guns are originating because guns, you know, every gun starts its life as a legal gun and at some point is diverted from legal hands into illegal hands. And it's along that pipeline that we need to intervene with law enforcement strategies and with stronger gun laws to try to reduce the flow of guns from legal to illegal hands. So in Chicago, we know that the, uh, the biggest single source, so guns are sold by, um, by gun stores, and the biggest single source of, of gun stores for Chicago's crime guns are gun stores located within the state of Illinois. So seven of the top 10 leading sources of Chicago's crime guns are within Illinois, and six of those seven are right in Cook County. So there's a lot of talk about uh, crime guns coming from Indiana, coming from Mississippi and other states, and that's true. But the largest single source is Illinois for our crime guns in Chicago. And, and are those legal or those start legal and then make themselves into the underground market? Those are guns that start legal. They're legally sold in a transaction by a gun store, and then through a variety of, of ways, they become, they fall into illegal hands. And those include straw purchases, they include uh, theft of guns from those licensed gun stores. Now, in Illinois, at the state level, there's no regulation or oversight whatsoever of gun sellers in our state. And there's legislation that's pending right now in Springfield that would change that. And there's good research to suggest that a state that has a license for a gun seller, that has law enforcement oversight, including security measures that are required at those gun stores, training for employees to prevent straw purchases, those kinds of measures which states have the ability to do, that that those kinds of, of initiatives can reduce the flow of crime guns into cities like Chicago. And so this is something that's a priority for the partnership. Uh, it is pending in Springfield. Actually, there could be action on it uh, as soon as this week. So we're uh, hopeful that, that that's a measure that, if, if passed and signed by the governor, really could have an impact at reducing the flow of crime guns into Chicago. I should say that uh, all of you should feel free to jump in on any of these questions. We're getting a ton, which is great. So I'm going to try and move through some of these on some of these other issues. So we, we addressed some key questions about guns. 
Eddie, there are two questions regarding data that I'll bundle for you, one specifically addressed to you. The first is, um, in referencing the data, where is the data coming from um, it, when it comes to all of the uh, metrics that help us identify who's at risk or what's happening? And the second is, what can you share about plans around research and evaluation of outcomes? What's going on there? Great question. Um, I'm sure uh, my CEO would appreciate me responding to this. <laughs> so I think that, so there are a couple of things that I want to I wanna mention first. In terms of research and data um, or best practices around this population that we're, we're speaking about today, there's very little of. And typically what actually happens is that Chicago, because of the city and the complexities, most researchers come to the city, sociologists and so on, to kind of study our city for different reasons. One of our partners is the University of Chicago Urban Labs with the Crime Lab. And what they're doing is an RCT, a randomized control group study. For those who might or might not know, typically when you're thinking about medicine, those are the type of studies that are, that are done to test a certain medication. And um, to some extent, they're more challenging when you're testing it around programming, such as the one that we're doing today with Ready Chicago. And it's challenging because of all the different factors that come into um, supporting an individual and what really seems to be working with a person. So we are targeting about 1,100 people to which 400 of these individuals will be receiving the transitional job within the first year. The hope is that we're able to learn if whether or not the kind of behavior therapy seems to be working, if the professional development opportunities they're receiving every other day at work are also working, the individual co coaching or case managing management, is that working? And an array of other, other um, questions that we have. The way that the, and this is a, a, a very brand new tool, the way that people get referred to us is three ways. The first one is through leveraging our community partners. MFS is an amazing partner in that sense because they are supporting individuals who are doing direct street-level engagement. And then historically, you would have outreach workers connecting with them, but there was no carrot behind the stick. No jobs, no nothing. Like, hey, put your gun down, but without, just by sharing a testimony. Now, for the first time, we actually have jobs to go along with it. Mm. So that's been an amazing uh, opportunity to really engage individuals into the work and they can refer to, to the ready program. The second way that we're engaging individuals, as I mentioned earlier, is through the Department of Corrections, uh, through parole, probation. Uh, we had just got off a meeting talking to the um, federal probation as well. So hopefully we'll be receiving some individuals that fit the criteria uh, for our program. And then lastly is a tool that the, the crime lab, the urban labs are using to identify individuals who are at the highest risk of gun involvement and more likely to be either victims of violence or perpetrators of violence. And the way they do this is by measuring an individual's uh, number of arrests, what kind of arrests, what kind of communities, and different, they've been to the hospital, they've been shot, they've been victims uh, as well, and then targeting those individuals not by uh, taking a punitive approach, but thinking about if we know these individuals are high risk or individuals that are highly to become victims or perpetrators of violence, how are we as a community trying to address and support these individuals? And that tool in itself has been a game changer in terms of the field of outreach. And I would say this, the city of Chicago is leading that. And I'm hoping that within the years to come, 
that we are able to replicate that as well. The data piece is fascinating because it's also merging data sets. It's also looking for, in some cases, social media analysis and text words. This is not related to Chicago, but to give you an indication of really fascinating way that this kind of research can be applied is um, the Chicago Crime Lab at the University of Chicago uh, is working on a project with the NYPD looking specifically at domestic violence. And they started to scan police reports after incidents of domestic violence. And the real issue is, how do you actually predict likelihood for further escalation and additional violence in the home? And it's very, very hard. And previously, um, in New York, as is the case all across the country, you rely really on just some sort of gut instinct. You don't know. You have a feeling and whether the officer should return. Long story short, they did an analysis where they actually determined that the presence of the word choke or choking in the police report actually had a huge correlation with the likelihood of increased incidents and higher risk in that same household. So really fascinating work. Some of that same technology and and data combination is being put to use in these questions as well. Um, Question to ask of each of you. This is a, a big question, but I'm looking for a short answer. What action, in your opinion, would provide the biggest impact to stem gun violence? Um, we'll just run straight down the line. Eddie, what would you say of one thing, if you could prioritize? Jobs. Jobs. All right. Nina? I, I'm, I'm not going to say one thing. I, I reject the question. I reject the premise. <laughs> I, 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 think, I think that, you know, sort of the whole point, I think, of, of, our, of our panel here is that there is no, you know, silver bullet, um, to, to use a, a bad uh, gun phrase. Um, it, it, really, it really requires a comprehensive approach. Right? It requires intensive supports for those who are at highest, highest risk. It requires uh, investing in uh, communities that are hard hit by violence. It requires strengthening our gun laws to reduce the availability of guns. It requires building trust between police and communities. And it requires um, supporting the, the, the real grassroots uh, groups that are working so hard on the ground every day uh, to reduce violence. Nina didn't leave any for me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well. So, but if I had to be cornered on one, it'd be uh, trust between the police and the community. Uh, and why is that so critical? I think because at, at the end of the day, um, in this, this city... Or maybe the, the question is really, how do we get there? Well, how do we get there, I think, is an easier answer than the other one. Um, one, I think that... that over the last six months, there's been an unprecedented amount of resources put into communities. Again, Cure Violence being refunded, ready, actively going to work, and our program going to work, and Arnie Duncan's work. That work that we are doing in all these communities has made it a little bit easier for the community to trust the police after the, not only the Laquan McDonald situation, but the years of lack of trust. And so the work that we're doing, going back to what Nina said, is, is critical in enabling further the development of that trust. Yeah. And what, one other thing I'll mention along those lines. So uh, folks may know that um, the Federal Justice Department uh, declined to pursue uh, a consent decree with the Chicago Police Department um, following the investigation of, of DOJ. Um, but in its place, Attorney General Lisa Madigan kind of stepped in and filed a lawsuit against the city and the police department with the goal of negotiating an enforceable consent decree um, with with CPD. That process is underway. Um, There is a uh, robust community engagement 
uh, component to the negotiation of the consent decree that the Attorney General's office is leading. And I think that's another opportunity to build that kind of trust um, that has been so damaged um, in our city between community members and the police. And that's also something that the partnership is supporting. Um, quick follow-up on that, a question that relates to the Civilian Oversight Board, the GAPA process, and the payoff is, does the political will exist to make Civilian Oversight Board with real teeth a reality? I, I think it does. I, I think um, the, there's a real consensus um, in, in the city among uh, policymakers, among uh, citizens, among community leaders that repairing and restoring the trust between the police department and the community is uh, a, a high priority. And one way to do that is through uh, restructuring the civilian oversight of the police department. So I think the political will is there. Eddie, there's a question here about the portion of gun violence um, that occurs in massacres like uh, the Parkland tragedy versus daily street violence. And in addition to sort of numerically framing that, uh, I'm interested also in the attention that we place as a society on those, on those two things. What's your response to that question? Uh, so I'll, I'll be PG about it. Um, you know, honestly, so first of all, I just want to say this. It's really unfortunate when we have massacres, whether it's at a school or, at, you know, in, in the Vegas or, or any other place in our country or around the world for that matter, one life is just as important, whether it's a young person in Florida or a young person in Chicago. I, I tell people, so I, I, I live in LaGrange Park. I have four beautiful little girls. And the difference between my little girls and a lot of the people that we're serving through Ready Chicago or the services that are being provided through MFS is the zip codes that they live in. That is one of the biggest differences. See, my girls are going to be going to really good schools because I pay tax dollars for our home. That's part of the reason why I moved there. And they'll have other opportunities. They'll have a, a good you know, family support system around them. My father-in-law, co-chair of the surgery of Rush Hospital. So I, I never have to worry about their future, is what I'm trying to say. But yet, I, I can't help but to wonder... Why is it that we give attention to one group who, unfortunately, have been victimized one way versus the other? And again, it's not to minimize one or the other. I think it's important that we talk about racial structures. I think it's important that we talk about uh, inequities or lack of access. I think it's important for us to talk about what would it look like if it was our child that was killed, what would it look like if your child wasn't born to you but to a different set of parents that actually came from the 60623 community or the 60638 community? What would that look like? How do we personalize this? Because at the end of the day, 18, 17 lives and all, and all the young people that got hurt in this tragic incident in, in Florida, we have so many other people in the hundreds here in Chicago that are suffering the same way. But nobody, I shouldn't say nobody, but the, the outcry is very different. Why is that? And I think that's the rhetorical question that I ask you to so ask yourself. Why is that different? 
let's close on this just to pick up on that thread. How can people here, there are a number of questions about that, get involved in this work, in this partnership, in what ways? I'd love to hear from each of you as we wrap up. Uh, I'll just jump in. I think I've been thinking about this. So the, the first thing is to get proximate. It's too easy for us to just go away, uh, whether it's, you know, Eddie and I grew up, uh, he's a lot younger, but within blocks <laughs> of each other. Um, but now he lives in LaGrange Park, and I live in Old Irving Park, and we ha- we're away from these neighborhoods where we grew up. We need to get proximate again in order to make an impact on this work. That's the, the first thing. The other thing I think that Eddie also alluded to is to changing the narrative on this false hierarchy of human value. Like we kind of have this notion that the, there's values different uh, based on the pigmentation of the color of your skin. I think we need to reject that narrative and uh, change that. And finally, I think for those of us who are in this work, and, and the great majority of our outreach workers out in the community aren't paid the kind of dollars that we are or that you are to do this work, but their, their superpower is their hope. And we cannot lose the hope that we could turn this tide and change this city to a more peaceful place. Nina, let me give you the last word. Well, I'll say three specific things how folks can get involved. If you are an employer, make job slots available for the population that's served by uh, Ready and and MFS. Uh, If you are a community leader, participate in community engagement efforts between the police department and uh, community members. If you have resources, contribute to this effort. Learn how to join the Partnership for Safe and Peaceful Communities or contribute to the Fund for Safe and Peaceful Communities, which is the fund within the partnership that makes the small dollar grants to the -the on-the-ground community-based organizations. We definitely need your help and your support, and there are lots of ways to engage. Nina Vinnick is Program Director of the Joyce Foundation. Eddie Bocanegra is Senior Director of Heartland Alliance. Rick Estrada is CEO of Metropolitan Family Services. Thank you all so much. Please join me in thanking you. As you've heard, the Chicago office saw this as an opportunity to connect with clients on an issue that is important to them and to us. We hope you found it informative and impactful. Please feel free to share it with your friends, family, and anyone else in your network who might find it of interest. Thanks for listening. Bernstein, making money meaningful for individuals, families, and foundations for over 50 years. Visit us at Bernstein.com.